the, the world is a little bit crazy. It's different than when we were kids, right? I mean, when we were kids, like when I was a kid, you only had to worry about a few good diseases. Like you could get chicken pox. Y'all remember that? I mean, you got these little red obnoxious bumps all over, but it was great because you got like a couple of days out of school. It was awesome. And, and, or if, if things went really bad, you got this thing called the whooping cough. You remember that? That was really, really terrible. Or you can get like tonsillitis. But it was pretty boring when we were kids. But now you go to the doctor and the whole world's gone crazy. It's a totally different world. Now they go, you have mad cow disease. What? What the heck is mad? I don't even know what that is. How can you have something you don't even know what it is, right? Or, or like, remember a couple years ago, I mean, all the rage was the West Nile virus? And I was thinking, I haven't even gone to Africa. I've never seen the Nile River. I mean, you telling me a mosquito has flown from Africa to Detroit, Michigan and stung me and I got this disease? Come on. Come on. That's just weird, right? Or, or remember, like the, uh, I think it was like about two years ago, everybody was going to die from the Asian flu. Do y'all remember that thing? It was like called SARS, and they, and they wanted us to wear these white masks around. And so you saw all these crazy people walking the streets of Detroit with these white masks, acting like that's all hip. I'm like, that's crazy, right? And then, of course, uh, last year, all the rage was Ebola, and it was going to kill every one of us. Y'all remember that deal? Remember that? And then now we got to be worried about the Zika virus. What has gone on in our world? It's crazy. I mean, if you, like, believe the press, you are going to die of something absolutely terrible. It's true. And, and you know what? It is true. Listen, you, you are going to die, but you're already inflicted with something that's absolutely terrible. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but, but it has been an infliction inside of you since the day you were born. You were born with this disease. And you, you want to know what it is? It's good old-fashioned, plain old self-centeredness. Selfishness. Good old-fashioned selfishness. Now, listen, every one of us is inflicted, but you're probably way better than I am, but I can tell you what, I have it terribly in my life. Uh, let, me, let me tell you something. It is, it is a big part of who I am. And it's probably a big part of, of who you are, right? And it, it is brutal on relationships. It is absolutely brutal on relationships. If you want to uh, destroy a home, just let this disease come out of you. You want to destroy a marriage, just let this disease come out of you. You want to destroy a father-son relationship, you just let this disease come out of you. You want to destroy a business, a work community, a workspace, you just let this thing called self-centeredness, selfishness, just ooze right out of you. Because it's already in you. You're already wired with it, right? So we've been talking about this whole idea that all of us believe that the world needs something different than, than what we just talked about. That the world needs L-O-V-E, love, right? I, mean, I would think almost every single one of us would say, yep, the world needs a different kind of love. Not the kind of touchy-feely, sexy Hollywood type of love, but we need something that's more than just that. We need a, a kind of love that is, that is so deep and so different inside of us that it drives us to be a different kind of people. It drives the world to be even a different kind of world. And so we started to talk about this idea that there's a God type of love out there. Listen to me, that there's a God type of love and it's different than the kind of love that we experience right around us. Uh, and, and that and that this God type of love, it needs to ooze from the inside of us outward. It needs to become the passion and the driving force of our life. And we said that, listen, at the end of the day, you can know it all and you can say it all and you can do it all. But we got around this idea that without love, you are? Nothing. You're nothing. 
You're, you're nothing without the God type of love driving who we are. You can build a life, you can build a career, you can build a home, you can build all kinds of things and accomplish all sorts of things. But without love, you are nothing. It doesn't amount to much, not in God's eyes. Not in God's eyes. He says there has to be something different inside of us. And, and so we started to get our minds around what does this love actually look like? And we said that love is certain things. It is certain things. And it's not other things. That love does certain things and love doesn't do other things, right? And so let's look at how the Bible begins to describe this. This is an interesting thing. It's, it's actually found in the book of 1 Corinthians, right? And, and, and so this is coming out of a, a church that resided in a very ungodly Roman-occupied city, right? And in, not much of the things of God were going on. And so this, this young Christian church, they were called the Church of the Corinthians. The Church of the Corinthians, because they were found in the city of Corinth. And, and they were trying to figure out how to love like God loves in a world that doesn't really accept it and doesn't really practice this sort of love. How to be different in this world because of their faith. And so God uses a man named Paul to begin to write this to us. And as we've said before, that Paul was this, this man who was far from the heart of God, doing very ungodly, very unloving things. For crying out loud, he made his living from killing Christians. He persecuted the Christian church. And all of a sudden, he meets Jesus, and his whole life is taken in a different direction. And think about this. This guy who was against God and against all the things of God, now God is using him to tell you and me, the Christian church, how to love in the world right around us. And this is what he says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse four. He says, love is patient. And then he says, love is kind. And he's beginning to describe what this kind of action-oriented love looks like. He says, love is, love is patient and love is kind. And then he says, love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. And then he says this. He says, it does not demand its own way. He says love is a couple of very specific things. And he begins by talking about love is patient. When you see patience in practice, that's what love looks like. When you see kindness in practice, that's what love looks like to God. So he says love is certain things. He says love is patient, love is kind. He says it's not other things. It's not, uh, it's not proud or boastful or rude um, or jealous or any of those things. And then he turns the corner and he says love does not do certain things. Love doesn't act in certain ways. And then he says, love does not demand its own way. Love doesn't demand its own way. How you doing? Amen. It's hard, isn't it? Because everything in me wants to demand my own way. And my guess is, is that you're not far from me. That everything in you wants to demand your own way. And God points to a different kind of love. He says, love does not demand its own way. So, um, and there's some, I love some of the way that others uh, uh, translate this. They, they say, love is not selfish or love is not self seeking. And, and the problem is, is that this condition of selfishness is deep within every single one of us. We're born with it, right? And, and you go, well, no, 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 Jeremy. You don't really know me, so stop judging me. I'm not like, so I'm like loving. And I'm generous with people. And I'm kind to people. I am not selfish. Now, now listen, listen. That may be true of you. 
That may be true of you, but let me just humbly submit that you are infected with this disease of selfishness. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Stop judging me. You can't, don't judge me. No, no, let me, let me just prove that not only are you prideful, but that you are full of selfishness. Let me just prove this to you, okay? So just go, go with me on this for a second. Here's how, here's how I know that every single one of us is infected with this disease, every single one of us. Now, let's just suppose that there is a group picture and you're in this group picture and you know this group picture is being taken and somebody takes a picture and then all of a sudden they turn the camera around and they show you on the screen, this is the group picture. Let me ask a simple question. Who is the very first person you look for? You, you. Now, that does not make me selfish. I was just looking to see if I look good. Got it? But we have determined that the very per first person that, that you look for is you. Now, that doesn't necessarily make you selfish, but, but let's just go up a level here. Let's just say you, you look at this group picture, they show it to you, and you look for you, and you look good. Is it a good picture? Do you determine it to be, if you look at that picture and you go, whoo, I'm looking sly there, man, that's nice. It is automatically a, it's a good picture at that point. Well, that still doesn't make me selfish. Well, no, hold, hold on. Let's just, so this group picture is taken and you, you turn, it turns around and you're looking at it and the very first person you look at is you in the picture and you determine that you are good looking, thus it is a good picture. But let's just say everybody else in the picture looks horrible. I mean, everybody just looks horrible in the picture, but you're the only one who looks good. Is it still a good picture? Picture? Come on, let's be honest. Yes, it is. Yes, it is, and you know it. And if you don't say it's a good picture, you're lying right now. Because as long as you look good, you're like, that is a good picture. I mean, it doesn't matter if the girl like three seats over from you is like cross-eyed and like snot going down her nose. It doesn't matter because if you look good, it is a it is a good picture. And it doesn't matter if everybody else is distracted and looking in every other direction. As long as you're GQ, as long as you're like it, as long as you're like dialed in and it looks good on you, it is a good picture. It doesn't even matter if other people's butt cracks are showing. It doesn't matter because for you, as long as you look good, it is a, it is a good picture and boop, post up on Facebook it goes. Right? It is just true. It's, it's how it works in our life. But listen, 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 listen. Paul comes along and says, love is different than that. Love does not demand its own way. Love doesn't seek first itself. Love doesn't become selfish. Love doesn't become self-absorbed. Love doesn't become self-centered. Love, the God type of love that we're talking about, is different than that. It seeks something more than that because, because when, when we do acts... When we do things, when life is set in motion based on our selfishness, by our self-desires, by our self-motivation, bad things happen. It's just true. And Paul begins to warn us that if we're not careful, if the things that stir us to action are completely selfishly motivated, bad things are going to happen. As a matter of fact, James, the brother of Jesus himself, writes about this. Very, very interesting. The brother of Jesus, he says this. James chapter three, verse 16, he says, for wherever there is jealousy and what? Selfish ambition. He says, there you will find disorder and evil of every single kind. He says, when, when the ship, when the self-motivation drives the ship, bad things happen. Need, need, need some proof of this? Just look 
at a little poll out of what happened in the news this week. I just went on the news. Here's what's going on in the news right around us. Okay, check, check this out. Um, a teenage girl. See, when, 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 moti- when self motivates our actions, bad things happen. Listen, listen to this. Um, a teenage girl dies in a car wreck. Her boyfriend was challenged at a light to do like one of those city races and he ends up wrapping his car around a telephone bowl, killing a 16-year-old girlfriend. When, when, when self motivates your actions, bad things tend to happen. Uh, there, there's a story of, of, of a large bank that's in deep legal uh, trouble right now, costing their shareholders and investors and their depositors millions and millions of dollars because they were caught overcharging their customers and false billing and all that sort of a thing. And it hurts all kinds of lives. And you don't think it's a big deal because, oh, that's just a corporation. No, no, those are lives. Those are people, that's people's money. That's people's work. Bad things happen. Listen, when self becomes the motivation, bad things happen. There was a national politician, nationally known politician that was arrested for child pornography. Listen, when, 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 when self begins to steer the ship, bad things happen. When we... When we demand our own way, things can spin out of control pretty, pretty quickly in our life. This is why, listen, this is why good parents, good parents, they understand something about raising children. They understand that they have to start young. They have to figure out how to put the right desires and the right will within a kid because good parents have figured out that bad, bad parents let their kids run wild. Good parents have figured out that bad parents let their kids set their own ambitions. Good parents have figured out that bad parents let their kids do what they want and have desires for what they want and they don't abate them at all. Good parents have figured this out. And good parents look down the line and they see what a 20-year-old who has never had a bridal put on him or, or never had a guard put on his life, they know what that 20-year-old ends up looking like. How does that end for that 20-year-old? who's never had any direction, who's never had any guards, who, who, who's never had any, any restraints put on them by the parent? How does that end for that kid usually? I'll just tell you, not very well. Not very well at all. Because when selfishness steers the ship, bad things tend to happen. And, and so last time we were together, we, we started talking around about this idea that comes from the pages of Scripture that that if we're going to get this God type of love deep in our soul, then we can't look at the world around us. Because if you look at the world around you, I mean, come on, does it really take a rocket scientist to figure out that we're kind of screwed up? I mean, really, can you see this or is it just me? You look at the world around you, you go, what is happening? Where evil is called good and good is called evil. It is. It's all day long in all sorts of areas of life. And so we started getting around this idea that, that if we're going to get this God type of love, we've got to look somewhere different. We have to begin to look to Jesus as our example because he loved differently. He loved like God loved. And we've got to look to his example that he left for you and for me. And, and it says that, that literally we need to take on, if you and me, if we're going to be followers of Christ, and I don't know that you are, but if you are going to be a follower of Christ, then we have no other choice but to look to the example of Jesus and what he did. Listen, listen, listen. Look at me for a second. If you follow Christ, he says, what Jesus did, you have to do. If you're going to follow him the way he loved, that's the way that you're going to have to love. The way that he conducted himself with other people in relationships, that's the way. No matter what is inside of you, you have to alter who you are to become what he wants you to become. That's what we started talking about. 
right? Now, what's interesting, we read this passage about taking on the same attitude of Jesus, but just before that, the writer of Scripture tells us some very straightforward things about where this is going to lead in our life and, and what we have to do about this. And this is what he says in, first, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says this. Listen to this. He says, don't be selfish. selfish. He just comes right out and says it. He says, don't be selfish, right? He says, uh, don't, don't become self-absorbed. Don't be self-motivated. Don't become uh, uh, self-centered where everything revolves around you, revolves around you, and it's because of you and for you, and, and the whole world just is, puts you on a pedestal. He said, don't do that. It will not end well in any relationship that you have. It won't end well. So he says, don't be selfish and don't try to impress others. Instead, he says, be what? Humble. He says, be humble. And he says, thinking of others as better than yourselves. And then listen to this. This is heavy. He says, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others as well. And when you look at this, you go, that's impossible. That is impossible because we get out of bed looking out for our own interests, right? We started to talk about this last week, that we, we get out of bed with our own desires, our own pleasures in mind, our own wants in mind, our own direction in mind. Everything within us is wired from the moment our feet hit the ground in the morning. Everything is wired for our own demands. Everything. And when you look at this, you go, that's impossible. What do you mean don't look out for your own interests? I can't help but look out for my own interests. God built me this way. But listen, friends, he, he doesn't say that you can't look out for your interest. He says, don't only look out for your interest. He says, you got to keep others in mind as well. He says, of course, you need to figure out how to take care of yourself and your own family. Of course, you have desires. I put those desires in you. But don't let those desires consume you. Don't let you, listen, don't let you consume you. What's really interesting about this is that if you were to kind of unpack this a little bit, and, and I don't want to get all weird on you, but if you, if you were to go back into the original Greek language, oh, he's going to the original Greek. It's going to get all up and crazy in here. Listen, listen, listen. It carries an interesting flavor to it. This word that we simply translate selfish, it has this flavor of contentiousness with it. In other words, don't act, don't move, don't respond, don't speak, don't run after things with your own selfish interests that will lead to a division in a relationship, a contentious relationship. Make sure that when you're going after your own desires, when you're going after your own wants, when you're going after your own dreams, make sure you don't walk on other people to do it. And that's hard. You ask anybody who's wired for success, you ask anybody who's wired to get something done in life, it's hard to restrain this inside of you. It's hard even in your own little family not to walk all over your kids or your wife or your husband and getting done what you want done in life. But, but Paul comes along and he says, love does not make its own way or demand its own way. He says, love serves, love cares, love lifts. Love doesn't push or shove its way to the top. It's different than that. Not the kind of God love that God wants for, for us and from us. He says, it's different with God. He says, you can't be like that. You can't be self-driven, self-oriented, self-absorbed. You got to consider others along the way. And then he, he links this idea of demanding something to something else. He links it to, to this thing called anger. He, he says, love is not irritable. And I like how other translators put it uh, even better. He says, 
Another translator, NIB, it says that it, love, it, is not easily, what? Angered. It's not easily angered. He, he links this idea that love is not demanding to being irritable because being demanding, listen, is just one very small step away from being angry. Come on, it's true. Come on, think about this for a second. Being demanding is just one little step away from being an angry nut. Right? It's true, isn't it? Early on in the scriptures, listen to this. There's a story of two brothers. Maybe you're familiar with this story. Uh, Sure, they had their differences. All brothers have their differences. One was probably a mama's boy. The other one was probably more like his daddy. Uh, We learned that one was drawn to farming. The other was drawn to ranching and and cattle and all those sorts of things. Um, But but it's interesting. But beyond those types of things, they seemed very compatible with one another. Both were raised in the same culture. Both were raised by the same parents. Both were raised um, on the same hills and played in the same gardens. And both were raised to fear and love the same God. The problem came when one brother killed the other brother. The problem suddenly pops out that one killed the other uh, you may remember the recording. I want you to think about how, how sad this is. The very first recorded murder in human history was between two brothers who were taught to love one another. Something broke in their relationship. Something led Cain to kill Abel. And the question is, is what made one brother spill the blood of the other? And friends, I would just humbly submit to you that it's the same motivation that drives every murder to this very day. Anger. It's this question of anger. Genesis 4, 5 simply says this. Look at how, how the scripture teaches us where this kind of thing comes from, where this idea of murder even comes from. It says, so Cain was very what? Angry. And his face was downcast. Cain, Cain was angry, all right? Angry enough to kill his brother Abel. Um, but anger, we're going to learn, I want you to think about this, but anger, we're going to learn, is not a sin in and of itself. Not at all. Matter of fact, God actually created this emotion called anger. This emotion um, was uh, called anger. It was actually God's idea. But, but in the process of this idea of being angry, he says something very straightforward. Listen to this. Found in the book of Ephesians, chapter, chapter uh, uh, four, it says this. It says, be angry. So pause for a second. So when you get angry, you just go to your wife and say, hey, honey, the Lord told me, be angry. Direct quote right there, right there, right? But he says there's more to it than that. He says, oh, yeah, 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 listen, listen. He says, anger is going to come, every one of us. There's going to be something in your life that pushes your button. It's a person, it's a thing, it's, a, it's something going on that you can't control. Whatever it is, there's going to be something that pushes your button. But he says... It like this. He says, be angry and do not sin. Be angry. There's an emotion that God created inside of you and it's for a reason. But he says, make sure there's a line drawn. And that line is, there's this line where it becomes sin, where you become something that you don't want to become. In other words, listen to this. It's, it's possible. I would submit to you that it is possible to feel what Cain felt and not do what Cain did true? It is possible to feel the anger, the frustration, the disappointment, the hurt that Cain was feeling and not end up doing what Cain 
did. And so Paul gives us this warning. He says, love is not easily angered because here's why, because anger can lead you somewhere. Maybe it doesn't lead you to, to kill your brother, but listen, he says, anger can lead you to become what you don't want to become and to do what you don't want to do. Now pause real quick. Anybody in this room care to admit that you have made a poor decision in your anger? Anybody? Oh, I feel so much better. Okay. The truth is, almost every one of us have had our blood boiling at one point where we have been so riled up for some reason that we said something, did something, acted in a way, moved somewhere, uh, changed something, made a decision, and later we go, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? You see this idea that Paul says love is not easily angered because it leads you to do what you don't want to do and become what you don't want to become. You know, let's just be honest. Are there people who have to kind of walk around you on eggshells? Because they just don't know who you're gonna, they're going to get that day, what they're going to get from you that day. Is it a good day or is it a bad day for her, right? Is it a good day or a bad day for him, right? People in your office going, I wonder who just walked in the door. They know who walked in the door. They just don't know which of you walked in the door, right? And Paul says, love, when you meet God, that changes. It changes in you. Love is not so easily angered. As a matter of fact, there are different ways that translators of scripture put this, and I love it. So I just kind of put them all together here for you. He says, it says like this, love does not, listen, or love is not, and and they just kind of throw some at you. Think about this. Love is not touchy. Love is not irritable. Uh, Love is not quick-tempered. Love uh, does not quick uh, to take offense. Love is uh, is not easily angered. Uh, Love does not fly off the handle easily, right? And love does not become an all-around jerk. PJV version. What, you never heard of the Pastor J version? It's totally legit. I'm telling you. Listen, you think about this story of Cain and Abel. Think about this. Um, Cain was all of these things and more. Touchy, irritable, quick-tempered. He was all of this and more. But, but where does this come from? Why is there such a short fuse in him? And why is there such a short fuse in you and me? Uh, The book of Genesis actually gives us a reason from God's perspective where this anger even came from. Look at this. This is incredible. It's very simple, but it's incredibly insightful. And and we need to learn this for ourselves. Uh, In in chapter four, verse four, it says it like this. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of his firstborn lambs from his flock. So he made a sacrifice. He brings this gift to God, right? The Lord accepted Abel and his gift. But listen to this. We don't know what all the details were, but there was something wrong in how Cain presented himself to God. There was something that that was offensive to God himself. We're not exactly sure what it was, but listen to what it says. But, But he did not accept Cain and his gift. And this made Cain what? Very, come on, angry. Says it comes, comes around and says it. This anger, when, when he sees his brother being accepted and him being rejected, he becomes angry and he looked dejected. So what did he feel, friends? He felt rejected. Dejected is the, the look that you get when you've been rejected. It's like when you go, oh, they didn't choose me, right? And you walk around dejected. It's a Charlie Brown sort of a look. But it's this idea of being rejected. And let me tell you something. Rejection is a powerful force in the human spirit. 
It is a powerful force when you feel that the people who are supposed to love you don't accept you. When the people who are supposed to care for you don't care for you. When, when you feel rejected, it is a powerful, powerful thing. And it leads to this thing called anger. And it leads to somewhere that we don't want to to go and it leads us to become something that we don't want to become. If you were to go back and, and read through the pages of scripture, you'll see this over and over. There was a man named Jacob and he had 12 sons, right? And his 12 sons, he, we, we learned that he like as a father, he, he neglected them and he didn't somehow nurture their relationship. But he had a 12th son, a kid named Joseph that he absolutely loved. He pampered his 12th son. What, did, what do you think this did to the other brothers when they felt rejected from their father? They became jealous. They became angry. It literally says they became angry at Joseph, the little guy. And then they did something crazy. This blows my mind. How weird is this? They're angry at their brother and they decide to sell him into slavery. Now, listen, could you imagine that? Like, my, I had these little guys running around my house. I'm angry at you. And they make a deal to sell him into slavery. Like, what? You know, what? It's crazy. But listen, anger comes from this idea of rejection. And, and, it, and it leads you to do what you don't want to do and to become what you don't want to become. Listen to this. Um, you, got the, you remember the story of King Saul, right? Um, he was rejected by the people of Israel and then eventually he was rejected by God himself and God said, hey, you're not doing my will anymore. I'm going to choose a whole new king and he chose a young man named... David to take over, right? And so David was appointed the next king. And, and during this process, King Saul, we began to talk about this a little bit last couple weeks ago, where King Saul hears the people of Israel singing this song. And here's what it says in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18. Uh, it says, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And something snaps inside of Saul. And what does it say? A very simple but very telling uh, little verse He's rejected by the people. And it says, then Saul became very, what? Angry. angry. He, he feels this sting of rejection. He becomes angry and it leads him down a terrible path of self-destruction. Anger has a way of consuming you. Anybody feel this in your life? Anybody ever just been consumed? It's like a cancer that grows and grows and grows and you wish you could just turn that switch off. But we don't. And this is why Paul puts up this warning and says, listen, listen, listen. Love is slow to become angry. It's slow to become angry. If you go back to the two brothers, the story of the two brothers, look what's recorded. Genesis 4, 6, it says, God is speaking into Cain right now, right? And he sees how dejected he looks. He sees how broken he looks because he was rejected by God. There was something that happened where Cain presented himself to God in some sort of unworthy manner. And God says, not gonna have it. Knock that smile off your face, kid, Right? And so now he's going back to Cain and he says some things to Cain. Listen to this. This is amazing. Verse six, chapter four, verse six, very beginning of the Bible. Apparently we have struggled with this idea of rejection and anger from the very, very beginning of scripture. God says, why are you so what? Angry, the Lord says to Cain, ask Cain. Why do you look so dejected? Listen, listen to what God says. You will be accepted if you do what is? Right. All you got to do is change your heart. You're not that far from me. All you have to do is change the direction of your heart. He says, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. God warns him. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to what? Control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. Up until this point, Cain was doing okay. 
He had this inward struggle and God's going, whoa, 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 I don't like where this is heading. But if you stop right now, if you turn it right now, you will be fine. And God pleads with him. Get control of this because love is not easily angered. And then he says, that, but, but we learned that Cain has a whole different plan. This is what it says. Verse eight. This is one of the saddest verses. Man. It says, one day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. So his brother, this is a normal thing, right? I mean, this comes off as like, hey, we've been out in the fields a hundred times before. We out, go out, we do some work, we play out there, we hit rocks around. You know, this is the normal deal. So he says, well, hey, why don't we go out into, into the fields? And while they were out in the field, what does it say? Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And this is why Paul warns, love is not easily angered because it leads you to where you don't want to go and become what you don't want to become. It has a power to master you. It has a power to consume you. And then look what Paul does next. This is amazing to me. This is so insightful. It's incredibly profound. He begins to link these thoughts together. He, 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 says, he says, listen, love does not demand its own. Because if you start to demand, you become angry. And when you become angry, you end up going where you don't want to go. And you do things you don't want to do. And then he links a whole new thought. He says, and love, and love does not keep a record of, of wrongs. He, he's saying, if you let this disease of selfishness grow inside of you, you will begin to think that everybody else is wrong. You'll begin to think that they can never do right and nobody will ever be good enough for you. You'll become frustrated and easily offended all the way along the way. He says, but love, the kind of love that's gonna carry you through, the kind of love that's gonna make this world different is a kind of love that does not keep records of wrong." He says, you're going to begin to keep this running list of all the reasons people aren't good enough for you. You're going to have this little checklist of every time they said something or did something or looked at you across the room or, or didn't respond to you. In a fact, they, they te I texted her three minutes ago. Why didn't she text me back? And there's this little checklist of all the wrongs that somebody has ever done to us. And we're going to pile them up, pile them up, pile them up as if they could never do right again. Ever felt that way? That somebody's kept this checklist for you? Come on, anybody? You ever felt like there's this like checklist out there and you are in such a big hole, big hole deep hole that you, you're just never gonna bust out of it, anybody? So like, like you are like nine years old and you lied to your parents and they still remind you of that. And they still say, you've always struggled with truth, haven't you? It started when you were nine years old and you're going, mom, I'm 42 years old. I'm different. Oh, no, you're not. And I got my checklist to prove it. Or maybe you were new on the job and you were young in your career and you got that assignment and you dropped the ball flat out. You, you, you just dropped the ball. And now everybody labels you as lazy or incompetent or, or whatever they want to call you. But you will never go anywhere because there is this checklist that they're keeping. And it's like you're in this deep hole. Ever felt this way? It's like you're in this hole and there's nothing you can do to ever please her, to please him. Maybe it's your wife, maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your kids, I don't know. But you get in this like checklist sort of a thing and you just can't seem to get out. Now, I saw this little video thing a long time ago. It was a live drama. It was like a church type of thing. And uh, it was this couple 
And they were in a kitchen together, right? And each of them had this little black notebook that, that kind of fit in their little pocket, right? And, and it shows the husband coming in. He was a few minutes late to work. And as soon as he walks in, because he was, he was a few minutes late, she whips out her notebook and goes, you're late. And she writes it down. He's like, oh, come on, don't, don't, don't write that, don't write that. It's in the list. It's in the record. She puts it back, and then they're going through the whole night, and it's one after another, once pulling out every little signal, every little cross, every little offense. They just whipped out their book, and, and, and as we learn through, the, through this little sketch as it unfolds, it was a really amazing uh, little sketch because we end up learning that they've been doing this since day one of their relationship, and that it's been crushing them. And now they're in this deep hole, so deep that they can't seem to get out. And by the end of this little sketch, they're like, for every little thing, they're whipping this little book out and they're writing it down, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. It's on the list, it's, got, it's on the record. You can't escape it. The hole is getting deeper and deeper. And by the end of the sketch, every little offense, the other person is going, hey, 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 don't write that down. They're begging, don't write that down, please. Don't write that down, please. What were they begging for? They were begging for a little grace, a little forgiveness, a little wiggle room in life. And Paul says, you will never have a good relationship with anybody if you just keep writing it all on the list. If you just keep piling it up because lists can be destructive and he's warning the God type of love just doesn't do that. It doesn't keep this ongoing list and this record of wrongs. But here's the thing. And it says to you and to me, don't be like this. But it's one of the hardest things to do. Because you and I, we can forget where we put our wallet. We can forget where we put our keys. Heck, I can even forget where I put my kids. But I cannot seem to forget what you have done to me. And you can't either. It's amazing. We'll forget all kinds of things. But we'll remember the slight that somebody did to us 25 years ago. And it's on the list. And you can't ever seem to get out of it. And we can know all the theology. We can know the old saying, forgive and Forget. We can know the theology that this is the way God forgives. We can know the theology that God expects you and me to forgive. But listen, we find it very hard to forget. As a matter of fact, I would say we find it next to impossible to forget. But Paul reminds us that this God type of love that we need to somehow create inside of us must learn the art of forgetfulness. We must learn the art of it. It's as if he's saying God is good at forgetting and so should you be. Let's just be honest, friends. It wouldn't take long for us to come up with a pretty dang good list of all of your offenses and all of your sin and all of mine. Dishonesty, lying, deceit, Cheating, lust, greed, selfishness, anger, demeaning other people, assault. And the list could go on and on and on and on. And thank God that he seems to have a way of forgetting because if the list was made about my life, whew, guilty, charged guilty deserves to be punished and my guess is if you were honest you would say the same thing the list could be pretty dang long and yet it seems like God has forgotten it seems like he's forgetful 
Apparently God doesn't keep a list. Listen, King David, um, he was coming out of a really, really dark season in his life and he uh, begins to write about the nature of his relationship with God. It's incredible. It's found in Psalm 103, uh, verse 10. Let me just read it to you. It says, God, he does not punish us for all of our sin. Woo. Did you hear that? That's what I thought. He does not punish us for all of our sin. He does not deal harshly with us as we what? Deserve. David is recording in another spot his, his prayer to God. It's amazing. It's written thousands of years ago and it could be written by us today. This is amazing. Listen to what he writes. He, he's, he's praying to God in Psalm 130. He says, Lord, if you kept the record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? David is like, God, I'm so glad. God, I'm so glad that you know and yet you forget. And so people think that, do you really think that God forgets? Come on, do you? No, 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 no. Listen, think about it. Do you really think God goes, I just don't remember what Jeremy did last month. That's, I just, I have no idea. No, the Bible's clear. God knows all. God knows all. You see, God is not forgetful. See, God knows everything about everything. He knows everything that I have ever done, everything that you ever done. And God says, it's not that I'm forgetful, I just purposely don't remember. Which is totally different, by the way. He's purposely not remembering. And to that, I say thank God. I say thank God. And Paul comes along and he says to you and to me, he says, if we're going to reflect God at all in this world, that we need to somehow figure out this art of purposely not remembering. If you're going to get your relationships back together at all, somebody's going to have to learn how to forget purposefully. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Now, it's not saying that you should go through life being abused by the same person over and over. That's a whole different subject matter. He's just saying, that. He's just saying this. Let me tell you something. What, what, what is this all about? He, he's saying that the world type of love tends to look backwards. What have you done to me? How have you hurt me? And we get our little book out and we write it down. But the God type of love looks into the future. The, God, the world love looks backwards. God looks forward. The world love looks there. God looks upward. And it's different. And he says, love is certain things. Love is not other things. And love does certain things and love does not do other things. And love is not demanding. It leads to anger and love is not easily angered and anger leads to this idea that nobody is ever good enough for you. But love does not keep that list. Love doesn't look back. Listen to me. Love looks forward. Amen? Amen. Amen. Yeah. yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Let's pray. Let me just pray for us. God, um, whew, thank you um, for your totally different kind of love. Thank you. 
Um, God, I freely admit that I have screwed so much of this up. Man. And I am sorry. Um, God, help me to love like you want me to love. And help my brothers and sisters, my friends in this very room, to love like you want us to love. Help us to be like you. Help us, God. In Jesus' strong name, we say, Amen. Amen? All right. Hey, uh, let me just chat at you just for a second. Um, first and foremost, if, if, if something is like clicking in you and like you're going, wow, I, man, that was really for me and I got to deal with some things or maybe there's something on your heart and you feel like maybe God is speaking to you. I know it sounds weird to hear that, but that is God speaking to you. You're in church. We think that's perfectly normal, <laughs> right? We, we think that's just perfectly normal here. And, and so um, you, may not need to con- you may need to connect with somebody. So up to my left, to your right, I have some friends who would just love to pray with you. That's it. If you have something on your heart, you, you have something going on in your soul, you just want somebody to pray for you, up to my left, to your right, I have some people there who would love to connect with you. Also, I want to remind you that we are um, hot and heavy in this love campaign. We're trying to get everything together this week. So if your family uh, wants to participate, we would, we would think it'd be really cool if we all tip, chipped in five bucks, my family, your family, everybody, just five bucks um, for the whole family. We could really make a huge impact in our community, okay, with this love campaign thing, right? Y'all with me on that? And then don't forget about next steps. There's a whole uh, sign-up thing out there. We'd love to get you involved. God bless you. Invite somebody to church with you next week. Uh, We're going to continue with this whole idea of love. All right, God bless you.